0: This is Nathaniel Cogley.
1: And this is Eric Morrow. Welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Uh, We're going to pass over our traditional opening on the show and go right to welcoming our guest today uh, because we have a lot of questions and have him here today for his area of expertise. But we want to welcome to the studio uh, Dr. James Hurley, the 16th president of Tarleton State and we're welcoming him today, not uh, really to talk about Tarleton, uh, which uh, he does a lot of that in uh, being out in the community and engaging of uh, different groups and, and, uh, and as well as promoting the work that the university is doing, uh, not only here in Stephenville, but across the state. Uh, but we, we have him on the show today because of his professional experience and background, both in terms of uh, fiscal policy and in higher education. Uh, Dr. Hurley has had a 23-year career in education uh, as an instructor, professor, dean, vice president, and president. Uh, but he also has experience in those positions uh, in terms of not just university operations and, and really the financial side of it, uh, but how that in, in terms of higher education uh, relates to the economy, to uh, economic issues, to state fiscal policy. And, of course, here on our show in dealing with uh, political issues on a week-to-week basis uh, in with depth and civility, we'd like to say with the show, uh, this is a very critical area. Both uh, Nathaniel and I we're discussing this before the show, and we we recognize the challenges we have every semester in teaching uh, fiscal policy uh, because uh, I don't know Nathaniel your experience, but my students their eyes start to glaze over. Uh, you get into some areas of complexity that that is very challenging for them to understand. Uh, but in having Dr. Hurley here today, it, it's really putting an emphasis on how. Uh, Really critical uh, this area is uh, not just for us in higher education and and just understanding it politically, but really for our listeners to for all of us to to gain a deeper understanding of of the complexity of this and and how all of it either works or, or, or provides direction, impacts politics and elections. And so, uh, Dr. Hurley, we want to welcome you to the show today, and we're, we're glad to have your you here with that level of expertise. Well,
2: I don't know about the level of expertise, <laughs> but I'm certainly happy to be here. And Happy New Year to both of you and the listeners. We're excited to kick off a new semester. But more importantly, I want to thank both of you for bringing this program uh, to the public for awareness. You both are national experts. I mean, you've been quoted and uh, across the country often and so it's it's important that we do try to educate not only our students but the the region you'll hear me talk about regionalism today as you've heard me talk about a lot since i've been here and so um you know fiscal responsibility
1: is really really important
2: and uh and the understanding thereof
1: well thank you nathaniel's gonna start us off today with a, a question and uh, we we just really want to let our listeners know uh, how r- r- to, to really engage and think about this uh, and, and know that if especially some of these issues that we discuss from week to week, that uh, uh, going back and listening a second time, whether it's through our, uh, SoundCloud or through podcasts, but uh, that this is available. But this is one where we wanted to go a little bit in depth today.
0: And so Nathaniel is going to start us off. Yeah, good. Thank you so much for coming, President Hurley. And one of the strengths of the current economy is this relatively low unemployment rate listed at 3.5%. And those are people actively looking for work that don't have it, and that's pretty low. Um, you're naturally interested in employment rates. We want to see our students not only graduate, but enter a robust job market. And I'm just wondering what are some of the interesting trends and opportunities or concerns you see in the employment market right now?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question and a great segue to start our, our, um, this, this podcast. Uh, first of all, um, we are thankful in terms of higher ed that we have a robust economy where students are able to garner jobs. When the economy is really, really good, college enrollments are, and university enrollments are down, right? <laughs> and so it, it, there's this, there's this um, kind of a, a balancing act that has to occur because our economy is, is really robust right now. Kids can leave high school, garner a certificate, um, a, a very short, maybe 6 to 12-month certificate, where they can learn a skill, do a skill, and employ themselves at a very high level, and sometimes make more money than a baccalaureate or even master's level uh, employee could. And so, so I'm always mindful of, of of those. The one the one trend that I've seen that that concerns me is that I don't always focus on uh, the job index, but I, I want to focus on the wage index as well. Right? So 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 many of our uh, young people are able to garner and acquire jobs, but at what rate, right? What's the what's the wage in which they're earning? And I think nationally, I mean, it's it's safe to say over the last 10 years, that wage index has decreased. And so we are creating more jobs, but the jobs we're creating are at a lesser income. And so that's the one trend that Concerns me just a bit, um, and I think uh, a market reset. I know we're going to talk about that, or at some point throughout the show, knowing knowing your history. But uh, we are we we're, we have to be very mindful about this wage index versus the job index, mm-hmm. employment index.
1: On that, so the jobs report came out today. It was it was down a little bit. It's not anything to be that much alarmed about. Uh, of course, then that wage index, as you mentioned, has continued to trend uh, downward. And, and some of that is, is due to the types of jobs right. uh, that are available. And, and so where we see significant growth, there are some areas like healthcare, care, transportation that, that touch on higher levels of expertise. Right. There's a lot of jobs in certain industries that, that do not. Uh, and the ability for uh, people with a college education to get into jobs that uh, uh, do offer some progressive possibilities with wage increase. That seems to be what's been affected right now. Right. right. And and uh, and I'm I'm wondering when you're thinking about that and you and, and we we you know work work with students or you know even others out there that are graduates and so on. But thinking about um, how do how do we really prepare them uh, for that and the types of opportunities uh, kind of in a market like that because we're we're still trying to emphasize the value of an education. Right. But on the other hand, all these indicators, if if they are in tune with that, say that okay, it's kind of mixed right now. Right,
2: right. And and so I think both of you know the audience may not know one of the uh, emphasis that I placed a, a high value coming into the new presidency here was getting out and learning people in place, and I and I started by visiting our ISDs, right, the the P twelve sector of education, and when i talk to students uh, some of the students often say well i don't know if i can afford higher education and my answer is you can't not you can't afford not to obtain a degree because the new baccalaureate degree has replaced the old high school diploma just for a service level job right and so now we're thinking about not what is a p16 model but more of a p20 more p24 level Mm -hmm. Because so many of these students are matriculating through they're garnering an associate's degree in high school, they want to get a bachelor's degree. they're 19 or 20 years old and they think they're ready for the workforce right and they're not adequately prepared socially. you know I think the more time they have in, in the, the classrooms with their professors, the better they are prepared for post life, if you will. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, post post their baccalaureate uh, experience. And so we, um, it is that's a great point. So we have to be mindful of this this balancing act. And you know we're we're now in a in a society of of titles uh, and where degrees and certificates are going to become more valued. So how do we, in higher education educate the public on what is a good investment? the The national student debt loan now is about twenty eight thousand dollars per undergraduate um, student that's graduating from a public institution. I know if they graduate from a four- year private, it's a little higher than that.
0: So uh, following up on that student loan situation, we see that student loan debt has been going up. It's entered into the political discussion. We have candidates for president talking about tuition-free education or, or student loan forgiveness programs. And I always say these things are easier said than done. You create all these reverse incentives and who's going to pay for that free education. But it does seem to be an issue that overall student debt is, is headed up. Uh, what type of policies would you recommend around student loan Uh, debt situations
2: well for me well let's start with the number we know the two thousand I think this was um, the College Board statistic our national student debt is now 1.4 trillion just in the United States alone 1.4 trillion and a majority of that though we have to keep in mind it comes from the medical profession sector of, of loans so if you're a doc a vet a dentist, and you're going through those professional medical programs. Obviously, the cost of attendance is much higher, and you're maxing out that two hundred eighty thousand dollar plus threshold that you're you're eligible to to max out. So, so I also want to be careful when I often talk to our undergraduate students here, and they talk about the debt. Their debt is still relatively low compared to those professional medical uh, debt loads. So, let's you know for the sake of this conversation, free isn't better. Right, because you, you, you're you exactly right. Someone has to pay for that, and who pays for that? I do believe that there's great value in a student having, I use the term skin in the game. You know, they have to understand the value of their degree and how hard it was to obtain, because then I think that that perpetuates successes in life. And so how do we balance this um, this loan versus repayment? I'm a big believer in loan repayment if a student is is going into an area of need, of great need, uh, and also into a region where we have underserved, right, and so be it engineering, medical, whatever, um, you know, getting into the areas where, of, of rural America, for, for example, where we have no primary care physicians. Those students, I believe, should be repaid through some type of federal form. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And that way you can incentivize the sectors that are largely needed versus maybe creating a, a negative incentive of someone just, you know, going through the motions of an education. And oftentimes when I advise students, I use this phrase, you tell me if it's a good one or not, but it's good to reverse engineer your career. Like, like think that career you want and then think of the degree that's going to help you apply and this is good to to start with the goal in mind and and work by reverse engineering that process is that uh, advice you recommend
2: that's the same advice i give these high school students that we're recruiting you know the notion that you go to college and you think because the national average i think don't hold me to this but it's roughly three and a half times 3.2 times that a student will change their degree well that's not necessarily a good thing <laughs> Right. Take some time before you predetermine what you think you want to do. And that's the place like Tarleton. We give that renaissance education through the Gen Ed, and they can dapple into a lot of different disciplines and really learn and, and try to figure out where their passion. And I tell kids, don't follow money, follow passion. Because the money will, will figure its way. You know that, that will sort itself through. But follow your passion and be passionate about what you want to do. But your advice is spot on. Covey teaches us, start with the end in mind.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and when you're passionate, that just drives your energy to work and be productive and be successful in your career. For some of our listeners, they may have seen
1: some of the articles that have come out of the news stories on universities in Texas that are offering uh, free tuition uh, to students. And, and we've seen some of these. I think it, part of it is understanding that when you're looking at this in the political dis- discussion where they're talking about, federal, state government partnering or so forth, and then systems here in our state where uh, this is not being driven by the state. These are individual institutions or systems uh, that have the resources that are saying, okay, if your household income is a certain level, then we'll cover certain amount of your tuition and so forth. So that kind of leads us into this area of, of state fiscal policy, which we're in a state that, and even considering the idea of, of – uh, offering free tuition across the state would be very, very challenging, not only in the way that we've structured our fiscal policy in this state, but just in terms of how, how would you pay for it? I mean, right. the question of who and what when we're, we're in a, a mode and have been for the last 30 or 40 years where it's, uh, uh, take a step forward and then sometimes two step b- steps backwards on generating the revenue that's needed to address all areas that we're expecting state government to, to do. And so I, based on your experience, you've, you've been in, in higher ed in three different states. You've engaged with, with this. It's it's really always on the minds, especially I know if, as, as a position I've moved into here at Tarleton, it's always in front of you because you're always looking at how do you cover this and pay for that. Uh, we're, we're looking ahead to an, a, another fiscal cycle and uh, what do you see are some of the the differences that you've experienced you know maybe some of the the, the positives that you've seen and how uh, especially given we're a state institution and 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 the way state governments have addressed that what do you see some of, or some of those challenges going forward especially given the model in which we fund higher ed in the state of Texas
2: so that's a great question and um, I have had the good fortune of serving as President in three different states. And so I want to start with Kentucky um, very quickly because each state, I mean f- fiscal policy, um, especially when it is uh, concerning higher education funding, p twelve funding, secondary funding, whatever the verbiage is in each state it's 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 similar, but it's different. So in Kentucky, very much like Texas, uh, we were dependent upon one industry, and that was the coal industry. And so we saw, during the point where I was had the good fortune of working for go- Governor Paul Patton of Kentucky, we saw coal sales at, at a very high level, and so we had what was called the um, the severance tax on the coal severance tax fund. And when, when we were mining a lot of coal, then that fund was very large because of the tax off of each ton, et cetera. And it's very similar to Texas with our puff funding, right? I mean, our permanent university funding that really uh, supports the University of Texas and Texas A and M system is primarily based on oil production, and so it, it, it is very similar. and And I don't I don't know that every state isn't very similar. I mean, you you think about North Dakota and what's happened in that state, and South Dakota, those two states in particular over the last few years with the with the uh, natural gas boom. And so their funding levels for higher education really spiked there for about three to four years. And now they're, they're having to do more with less because of the price of natural gas. So I I kind of watch these trends nationally. I think what each policymaker has to consider uh, for their and in a place like Texas, we're so large. We have large districts. We have small ISDs. It's really based on where do we want, starting with the end in mind, where do we want to see educational attainment levels 25 years from now? And so I think, you know, I urge our lawmakers that we cannot afford to invest more into higher education. Simultaneously, we cannot afford not to invest more in our secondary or P-12 sectors as well. Because if we don't produce, if the P-12s are struggling with finances to produce a product for us, then we're having to do a lot of, uh, of reteaching, right, here. And then that's wasting taxpayers' money because students are having to take, you know, uh, intermediate classes um, or preparatory classes just to get ready for a college curriculum. So it's really hand in hand. Um, and, and so it's the chicken or the egg. Which one do we fund more? Well, I think we have to fund both equally as much because they both are, are so critical to the future of our economy, not just in Texas, but in the country. And we're blessed here in Texas, very much like Tennessee. Tennessee's a, a right-to-work state. We didn't have to deal with tort reform. All the same things that Texas has going for it. It's very business-friendly. Uh, our um, funding levels in Tennessee were at a very high level, and we, pro- we provided free community college for every high school graduate because our governor believed in funding, education. So it really comes down to the person and the group of legislators.
1: Well, one of the things uh, that's related to that that we've covered on this show is uh, we have a, a, a very challenging revenue system here in the state. And so my, my uh, focus on this, especially in Texas government classes and so forth, it goes back to constitutional reform, which is not anywhere on anybody's radar at this point. When we go back, it was attempted in the 70s, uh, and that was a time of looking at uh, how do we set the state up for the future, and so our reliance on sales tax, uh, our um, uh, reliance on on trying to find little pockets of resources and money, you know, fees here and so on to put it all together. And then also being very, uh, susceptible to recession. Uh, what's been driving this and keeping it going has been, uh, Texas being a business-friendly state, so you have more businesses locating, creating job creation, demographic growth, right. which generates demand for housing and, and infrastructure. Uh, some, some are saying that, that while we have an occasional crisis that, that has an impact uh, that we're we're kind of leading toward this point in time where maybe we're, we may have multiple crises that may right. may create those challenges. Um, and, and kind of looking ahead, I'm, I'm not meant to get off on on talking yeah. about constitutional reform and all yeah. that's another topic and so forth. But 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 this has such a direct impact on on higher education. And 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 while we've seen. Significant period of growth here at Tarleton. Uh, we know that's that's more moderated now, but you know has some potential as well. Um, how do you, when you when you look ahead? I mean, I, I know you know you. I've, I've heard you speak and talking about the vision and forward thinking on the part of the, the university. Where do you see you know the viability and the strengths of an institution uh, like we have here and in in, in, in our state system? Uh, and knowing that we're probably going to go through some more times like that. We're, we're going to have some challenges, and, and, and how do you, you know, how do you prepare yourself, you know, hoping that, okay, we hope it doesn't come, we hope we continue, but you've you got to be thinking about that, that it's happened almost every decade we go through a period like that, and then we've got to think about, well, where, where do we put, where, where do we... Uh, uh, rest on our strengths to kind of keep moving forward and providing what right. we we know that the, each generation needs in terms of higher ed. Yeah, that's
2: a great thought. And so for us in higher ed, um, all across the country, right, we're blessed that we're getting ready to enter into a, a census tracking year, right? And so in the next 12 to 16 months, we'll know census data. We'll know uh, demographics of how many 19 to 30 year old Um, you know pick any sector of of human and 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 so that's a blessing especially at a place like Tarleton because we're also in the process where we're sunsetting um, an outgoing strategic plan and we're getting ready to start the planning process for a new strategic plan which I think has to be uh, aligned with the 10 years I I think when you have successional planning or you have strategic planning to only think about the next year to two years three years is really short-sighted so I've made it very clear. You've heard me say that that our strategic plan will carry us through 2030. And and yes, we will have resets throughout the strategic plan, as we should. We shouldn't create a roadmap and say this is the only destination, right? I mean, the roadmap is this is the possibilities and the pathways of getting there. And so that has to be aligned with the I think the demographic census, because the demographic census will drive. Uh physical policy it's going to drive decisions of lawmakers in what areas of the state will more resources be invested that's those are obviously the areas that are going to see significant population growth and what in greater Stevenville here where we are where main campus is located how do what does that look like for us right over the next ten years and so I think it's a it's it's a beautiful time to do what we're doing because we really need to take that data and utilize it embed it and ensure that, that we are thinking about how does how does the the growth of, of Texas and we know we're growing because we do we will see an increase in baby births and we will see an increase in high school graduates over the next fifteen years. That the demographers made that very clear. The type of individual that is graduating from high school, we know that the Hispanic will be the majority, and so how do we um, how do we adjust? You know, what we have done, not only at Tarleton, but in higher ed period. And I think that's a good thing. Right. That's a good thing. We we know we have more females in the state of Texas that will be graduating over that 15 year period. And so how do we ensure that we're offering the programs and the degrees that both are male and female students? Because they think differently right now. The hot, you know, among male students in high school or in Texas is engineering. And we're seeing more and more females start to, start, starting to in, enter the engineering field, which is a great thing. But more of our females still uh, tend to pursue education in, in healthcare. So are we being adaptive and are we being you know, sensitive to meeting the needs of all of our students, of all colors? And I, that's, that's who Tarleton in my opinion is. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm sure in terms of your uh, strategic planning and uh, as you're mentioning a 10 year window, you're looking at those demographic trends and you're probably also looking at the national economy right. and how you think it might perform. Right now we see the stock market, housing prices, all-time high. I'll slip in here that my wife and I are particularly interested because we haven't bought yet, but we might buy, so Good. do you think this, uh, the, the current high values of these assets are justified by underlying uh, fundamentals, or do you think the market's due for a correction in the next 10 years?
2: I think we'll see a small correction, but I also think that we're in the new normal. Right. And, and I do believe that we'll see the stock market uh, reach, you know, 40,000 um, on the Dow level and simply because it's a new normal and it's just a number. It's really the the metrics that I want to look at are the performance indicators for each stock. What is the yield? What's the return for each investor? Because I think the number, unfortunately, has become a political number in which we fabricate. And we all know that Liars never figure, but figure, you know, figures never lie, but liars always figure. And so we can make those numbers look as, as we want. I do think we'll see a slight uh, correction. I, I don't, I, I hope, and I pray that we don't see another recession. Uh, but I do think we're going to see recession-like trends. Uh, but I think the stock market, because of of tax structures, et cetera, I mean, if you, you know, <laughs> You know, there 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 are tax implications into cashing out now that that are above eighteen percent. So, do you leave it in? Yeah. <laughs> do you take it out and have to pay such such a high rate? To, you know, to quote unquote cash in. And so, I do think there's going to be a slight correction, but I think the new normal is going to. See, we're going to see uh, these numbers continue to increase, and I and I think we have to be very cautious of that. I, in terms of housing, uh, I do think you're going to see. Um, a leveling off. But as long as interest rates are below, you know, four and five percent, and you know, it, it, it makes buying a condo or home or whatever affordable and a pretty good bet over the next 30, 40 years.
1: Mm-hmm. So looking at, at that kind of information and, and, and just analyzing it, and then, kind of moving back, putting our education hats yep. on, We're, uh, I can say that I'm not an expert in fiscal policy. Uh, there are things, I've areas I get off in at times that I struggle with. But, but we do have listeners, and, and we also you know, we engage with students. But right. f- from your experience, what uh, when you're looking at national trends like that, uh, data points, things to follow, what what do you recommend to kind of the, the regular person out there that's just you know they hear this and they hear that. It, it we know how much uh, uh, economic trends influence uh, uh, voting. They influence uh, perceptions about uh, politicians and political parties. what what are the things you, you would you would direct people uh, to to say? Hey, these are things you you, you should learn more about, or you right. should be engaged in more in depth to really be have some substance that informs right. what you're thinking about economic issues.
2: Well. F- Because we live now in a time where so many of our baby, my mom and dad, right, the baby boom generation, uh, they are retiring at a much higher clip uh, than predicted. And part of that is because of their retirement funds, the 401ks, et cetera, are outperforming expectations 20 years ago when they established these funds. And that's a good thing, right? And so I would tell the common investor not to panic and don't look at your investment portfolio on a daily basis. Because of the ebb and flow. If you look at the Dow, the NASDAQ, any indication, you know, the S&P, any of those indicators, they have still outperformed like 300 percent just in the last 10 years. <laughs> and, and 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 so just so so really be patient. Um, it, I do believe in uh, in successional uh, in planning. Right. I mean, it, we, we now see so many of our baby boom generation folks that are retiring and then they spend a year out of work my dad for example and then he went back and and kind of started a small business because he didn't know anything else and and so i call that successional planning think about what you want to live comfortably on the in the retirement that you've been building for this job that you've worked for 20 or 30 years but also think about what could be out there after retirement on a part-time basis or whatever just to kind of fulfill that that need that you have every day to do something to to better society so I think the market resets that I do think will occur. We shouldn't panic because at the end of the day, we've we far outperformed in our investment portfolios than we have it in, in terms of politics. You know, uh, every politician. I mean, if you look at how the economy is performing now, the Democrats will clearly say that it's because of the fiscal policies that the previous administration, the o, the Obama administration, laid out, and thus it takes eight to ten years. You know, we we used to call it Reaganomics and. Reaganomics and all those things, you know, this country has survived because and we've had Democrats, independents, uh, Republicans, whomever leading this country. We have the largest D- GDP in the world. And so everything offsets or resets off of us. And we're going to be OK. Right, We're going to be OK. We have a lot of smart people that are in positions, regardless of who's leading the country or not. We're going to do OK.
0: Your your reference to politicians is very interesting. Um, I know having been president in three universities, not only do you deal with the advocating for the staff, and the faculty and the institution itself, but that brings you into direct contact with politicians at both the state and federal level. And I'm sure that's kind of more of an art, you know, as you you learn the art of being diplomatic and interacting with them and trying to be effective in advocating for your students, your faculty, your institution. Is there any insights you have in terms of interacting with politicians and effectively developing a relationship? Yeah, That's a good question.
2: And I think first and foremost, we have to be honest and and forthright and transparent with our political leaders. So often we're so worried about whether they think we're a good leader or a bad leader or a good institution or a bad institution because something happened, right, or something's not going just just as planned. And that's okay. What I've found is politicians, our political leaders, would much rather be informed than surprised. Right. So so never surprise your boss, never surprise a a political leader and certainly someone that you have out there advocating on your behalf. And and I work very hard on cultivating those relationships, uh, constantly inviting them to campus. But but I'm I'm consistently on the phone with our senators and our state reps, just just ensuring that they know what's going on, inviting them to, to things that are. I know they can't come to every event, but just saying, hey, this is your institution. We'd love to have you. Uh, and again, that transparency, being transparent, uh, but you have to be able to articulate a vision because at the end of the day, they're representing more constituents than just Tarleton State. And so how does how does our vision fit into the greater good of the community, the region, the state, the country?
0: And it would seem natural that in your private conversations, you're able to have a more candid discussion than politicians would when they're making a public statement.
2: Yeah. And, and that's the key is, is having those one-on-one conversations. I mean, I often text um, our state reps and, and and just just pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I just I don't want you to be surprised. This is what's going on. This is some news that that may be breaking, and I just want you to, to have a heads up first. and And those one on one relationships are very very important. You know, shutting the door, sitting down and saying, here's truly what we need. Now I'm going to ask for this. These are our wants, but these are truly our needs. And I think as as a society, we have to be very cautious. And being able to delineate the difference between needs and wants. As a dean, your dean will advocate his, his, uh, and his staff, their needs and their wants. And sometimes we can't afford the wants, but we need to find a way to to, to fulfill the needs.
0: I think there's a Rolling Stones song by that.
1: You know. <laughs> <laughs> well I know I know our listeners will have appreciated this and we certainly have to have you on today to uh, just engage in some of these issues because uh, as we know in higher ed as we said at the beginning they they hit very close to home when you're talking about fiscal policy and uh, taking care of the needs of, of, of students in, in an institution like this that uh, I've been here 12 years and it's just been a dramatic change right. uh, for this institution and uh, on a path that, that we just continue to see more and more, uh, students benefit from that. Uh, but then on the other hand, and, and, and this is one area that we've gotten into with, uh, uh, teaching is, is it's also preparing those students to engage with these kinds of issues and, and have a, a deeper awareness and understanding of how some of this work or doesn't work around us. And so that, that, that kind of civic engagement, I know that's been a part of your background as well. And, and, and as we kind of conclude this today, um, uh, just in terms of, of that focus of, of, of civic engagement as it relates to not just higher ed but but economics and fiscal policy, uh, what would you encourage our listeners and, and our students here and uh, to, 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 to focus on as they go forward? Well,
2: I would start with the listeners, which which is a different t- set of, of individuals than our students is is to accept new normals, right and to accept that, um, our high school and college graduates um, think differently and, and and they're more they're more tech savvy right i mean this is the most tech savvy group of students that we will ever educate and and so we have to be mindful that the new normals will continue to exist and persist because of technology technology will change so much in the next 10 years um, and so that drives different conversations and, and so i would encourage listeners to be okay with that and embrace it uh, for our students, I would say that it's very important to have that, you, you heard me use the term, that renaissance thought. Um, and that's what I love about uh, a, a COFA, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're teaching students to, to have uh, thought in, in various topics in various areas and question everything. Now, questioning everything, you do it in a civil manner, right? And, 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 but that civic engagement, that's, that, that the ability to put others above yourself, um, you know, I think that's what makes the millennials so special. We thought that they were, they were going to be a very selfish uh, group of, of students coming through to educate. And they, they've been the opposite. If it's not in the best interest of everyone, they're not interested in doing it. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing for this country. And the Gen Zs and the Gen Xers that are coming behind, I think they'll have that same mentality. So it's about that civic engagement, civic give back, giving back civically. To your community to make it better.
0: Well, in terms of civic engagement, you certainly shown that today. You know, it's been an honor to have you on the show. You certainly didn't have to come on the show. You volunteered, and we were very honored to have you here. I think this was a very interesting discussion for both us and the surrounding community.
1: Yes, I, I, we, we definitely appreciate your time. We know you have a very busy schedule, but we also, the, that uh, uh, knowing our uh, lack of experience in some of these areas, but to be able to have you on and interact and kind of look at some of these things where, where where higher ed, economic, fiscal policy intersect. I mean, these are critical issues that we want our listeners to be aware of. So thank you, Dr. Hurley, for joining us today. Well, thank
2: you. And thank you for bringing awareness and creating a dialogue and a platform to have the conversation. And that's what's key is to have the conversation. None of us have the right answers. None of us have the all the
0: answers, but collectively we'll figure it out. Awesome. We'll be right back with more Cogley and Morrow after the break. Is classic jazz what you swing to?
2: Then listen to Hank Jones and Mike Pierce on Essential Jazz, one to three, Tuesdays, right here on KTRL-FM 90.5.
1: Come on, smile.
2: Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething maybe it's just a phase
1: maybe he has autism and we can definitely do something to help
3: maybe is all you need to find out more about autism no big joyful smiles by six months is one early sign learn the others at autismspeaksorg signs brought to you by autism
0: speaks and the ad council
3: politics can be confusing but coglia morrow have your back Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogliamoro on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogliamoro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network.
0: Welcome back to Cogli and Moro on politics. Eric, on last week's show, the uh, situation in Iraq with the droning on the uh, Iranian general Qasim Soleimani and also a leader of uh, Iraqi militia Abu Mahdi al-Mohandis was still unfolding and we were just trying to get our heads around this exchange Um, since then the government of Iran did retaliate they did shoot missiles at two US air bases in Iraq but no American casualties in that exchange And President Trump came out in a statement to kind of declare victory in the exchange and to de-escalate. Taylor, can we play clip one?
4: As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world.
0: Okay, good. So a lot of interesting was we've used the phrase state sponsor of terrorism for a while. This individual, Kasim Soleimani, was kind of a person who fit that description. And President Trump said, I'm going to treat you as a terrorist and take you out. A lot of people were concerned because he was a high-level general in the Iranian military. And we heard a lot of concerns. That we're headed to World War III. What's the response going to be? And we see here that both sides seem to have de-escalated. Uh, there were some retribution attacks, but no one killed. And Trump has taken the opportunity not to say, hey, don't shoot missiles at us. We're going to come back with more, but saying kind of we won that exchange. Um, we're going to now... Um, uh, declare victory on the exchange and hold Iran to a standard of no nuclear weapons and and stop funding terrorist activities. But what do you hear when you hear President Trump de-escalating here and declaring kind of victory on the exchange?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is it, it really starts to transition this now away from uh, the, the, the tension that has been developing over the motivations or, or at least looking at the intelligence and the reasons why Uh, Trump gave the order to assassinate uh, Soleimani. Uh, I think that helps in one way, because now this thing hasn't escalated with looking back and saying, okay, what did we get into? I mean, I, I've heard some people talking about uh, the chain of events that led to our engagement in Vietnam, mm-hmm. you know, being something very similar where there's, you know, a volley here and there, and then all of a sudden, uh, American interests are fully engaged in something that that uh, ends so tragically. Uh, so I, I think that that's one part of it. I think on the other side of it, It is an attempt uh, on his part and the part of his administration to de-escalate this and not move in a direction with uh, uh, the the rhetoric or any kind of further response. That being said... Uh, I don't think this is over. We started talking about this last week, and I'm glad we, we had time to come back to this because it has been very dominant in the news. It's, it's driving politics right now, even though we have the impeachment still lingering there, which I'm sure- Limbo. We'll, right? Yes, yeah, so we'll get back to uh, in, a, in, a, in, in a, a show or two. But uh, when we know, if, if you read the, the background of Soleimani, someone who has been uh, a target of the U.S., at least in awareness of what he's doing, Uh, for for a long time, I mean, more than a decade, uh, that his engagement with uh, uh, other terrorist groups, and so you mentioned the state-sponsored terrorism, uh, I think think we're probably in for some repercussions of this for years to come, that there, we know many of these groups always have plans in place, their ability to carry out those attacks in a way that would create Uh, the the most impact is very challenging because of our intelligence because of our uh, where we position our military and and uh, our uh, CIA operations and so forth. So uh, we have to realize and look back since 9-11 to think of the level of security that we have had, especially here in the continental U.S., but when we look at it across the, U- across the world, the work that, that these people have been doing uh, to track and to try to thwart uh, a- attacks against Americans, against American interests. But I think that th- something like this triggers those plans uh, where I think we're going to see some of these groups probably try to do some things uh, now. To what extent? Again, we don't know. Uh, there have been numerous attempts throughout, you know, the la- almost last two decades. But, but I think that that uh, the 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 mode here is shifting, and, and I'm hoping the administration's shifting in that mode as well. Is watchfulness and being very careful going forward because there are more things to come.
0: Yeah, and I, we certainly might see other strikes, but it seems to me like these. These uh, groups were already trying to strike us, already getting out of there. And it seems it's been interesting to watch President Trump, who did not run on let's occupy the Middle East. In fact, he's very critical of George Bush. But he was trying to find that middle ground. Bush had this idea of nation building and actually occupying on the ground the villages and installing a government and democracy in the Middle East. Uh, President Obama withdrew from Iraq yielded territory and had to reintroduce some lower level troops and it's been interesting to see president trump try to come down in the middle and protect strategic assets make strategic strikes but without this full level engagement that we've seen in uh, previous administrations
1: well it puts us back in the middle of this ongoing debate since the 1970s where the war powers act comes from and now that's in the center of attention again uh... with uh... A- really the analysis of what an administration is doing and the ability of Congress to, to understand that, to kind of hold it in check. And so I think one of the, the, the challenges for members of Congress, and I, I would say this is on both sides of the aisle, uh, as we, we kind of move into d- discussing this a little bit, uh, is that we've, we have an administration that has not necessarily been as um, has communicated well it's It's direction in foreign policy. I mean, there, there's been a number of things that have been very strong initiatives that certainly have support and have had in the Republican Party in the past. Uh, but but uh, some of this has appeared very haphazard or uh, the fact that we've had so much rotation in the national security team and and the consistency there. Uh, so all of a sudden now you have these questions about the intelligence behind and the reasons for, assassinating Soleimani at this time. And, and so one of the things that, we're, that we've seen develop this past week is uh, when the administration gave the briefing uh, to members of Congress of which in that briefing were Senators Rand Paul and Mike Lee, both Republicans. Democrats, yes, we could say, yes, they're gonna come out of the meeting saying, well, we don't agree with right. what the pre- what the administration, uh, how that, why they support the attack the way they do. But here you have two senators, two very different ones. Mm-hmm. Rand Paul, who is very strict ideologically and holds to that non-interventionist position uh, most of the time. Uh, Mike Lee, though, not so much, a supporter of President Trump, but is coming out saying, I, hey, wait a minute. i'm not I'm not hearing all the things uh, that I need to hear uh, that that would really lend support as to why the trigger was pulled uh, on this on this assassination. And so I think that raises some, uh, raises some critical questions. my My concern with this uh, is not so much about the motivations. I, uh, I think many people who, if you understand the office of the presidency and even members of Congress, if the president needs to act, he acts. And then mm-hmm. he needs to be willing to support that, uh, and, 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 account for the reasons for that. Uh, and I don't, I don't see the criticism from Paul or Lee coming from that. Uh, I think in, in the end, they're, they're concerned about, and, and what's really come out of this is questioning whether you can, question an act like this exactly. and and then thus it's questioning your patriotism so here you have lindsey graham now who comes out and says well they're they're emboldening the enemy they're 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 contributing in 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 helping the enemy by not being in line in lockstep here with what the president is doing and 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 that to me we we, we move back into uh something we saw during the bush administration after the invasion of iraq where they were members of the administration were saying, Hey, if you question, uh, what we're doing, uh, you're, 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 uh, uh, you're unpatriotic. Uh, and, and my understanding of, of the way we govern ourselves, uh, that freedom to be able to question, uh, the reason why we have checks and balances in place. Uh, I, I think that's very important. And, and, and to, to question that, Uh, Rather than to say, okay, we're we're we may disagree on a decision that's made or why it was made, but we don't disagree on the fact that we can openly discuss this or question it, even if it's behind closed doors. It's not public information that needs to be uh, uh, said. But but we've elected those leaders to be able to evaluate this and to uh, do what they're uh, constitutionally uh, empowered to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it was Mike Lee's uh, clip that got played a lot on the mainstream media. Um, and I just, when I went to record the clip, I wanted to get the full clip because he actually praises President Trump into that clip. But that clip is pretty critical of the briefing that he received and this kind of question of whether or not the senators have a role here. Can we play clip two of Mike Lee, Taylor?
3: We just left the briefing uh, and we were, t- we were talking about Iran. I, I want to state at the outset. I support President Trump. I support and respect the manner in which he has approached his commander-in-chief powers. I believe that more than any other president in my lifetime, President Trump has shown a lot of restraint. He's been reluctant to get us involved in wars all over the globe. He's been very mindful and respectful of the fact that When the American people are asked to give up blood and treasure, they're sending off their sons and their daughters, their moms and their dads, into battlefield. And he's therefore very careful about it. I respect that enormously. My comments at the moment are not directed toward the attack that occurred on Friday. We'll leave that to another day. I will say that we were brought into this briefing today to talk to us about that attack on Friday. I had hoped and expected to receive more information outlining the legal, factual, and moral justification for the attack. I was left somewhat unsatisfied on that front. Uh, The briefing lasted only 75 minutes, whereupon our briefers left. This however is not the biggest problem I have with the briefing, which I would add was probably the worst briefing I've seen, at least on a military issue, in the nine years I've served in the United States Senate. What I found so distressing about that briefing was that one of the messages we received from the briefers was do not debate, do not discuss the issue of the appropriateness of further military intervention against Iran. And that if you do, you'll be emboldening Iran. The implication being that we would somehow be making America less safe by having a debate or a discussion about the appropriateness of further military involvement against the government of Iran. Now, I find this insulting and demeaning, not not personally, but to the office, that each of the 100 senators in this building happens to hold.
0: All right, Eric. So we see in that full clip, and the media is not running the full clip, but he actually praises President Trump. He doesn't question his decision-making, but he's clearly disturbed by the lack of information he felt he got in the briefing, which was not President Trump's briefing. It was the, the Department of Defense and the CIA giving a briefing, but also this idea that the Senate should just support the president here and not, not discuss or debate this ongoing issue.
1: Right. And I, I think this is, presents a significant challenge uh to the atmosphere in which we we find very polarizing in our country right now, this this doesn't help the debate. It doesn't help us find. Uh, uh, uh well, w- whether we find consensus or not on some of these issues, it doesn't help to kind of ratchet that down. It pushes everybody back into their corners and saying, uh, oh, you're with the enemy. Uh, and, and that language and rhetoric uh, doesn't recognize that our unity is really in these principles by which we govern ourselves that allows for the evaluation, the, the discussion, the questioning, uh, the check on power, uh, that we know that has has been very critical in maintaining our uh, system of governance uh, uh, down through the the several centuries is that, that uh, this, is, this is very dangerous territory. And to actually see senators kind of talking in this way where you could say in the House, okay, you've got a lot more diversity and, and you see people from both ends of uh, ideological spectrums on different things that actually go after each other in, in, in a certain way. Uh, the Senate, while we've had occasions you know, in the history of the country where uh, they've been a little more virulent in terms of their, their critique of each other, it's not been at this
0: level. I would say this is kind of what the founders envisioned. They envisioned this institutional battle between the different branches, unless the parties, which they didn't envision at all. And we're kind of used to this partisan warfare, two teams. But actually, the founders envisioned this institutional structure, checks and balances.
1: Right, right. And I, and I just don't see that this this type of language and this approach to this, in in yes, letting the president, he's in the office, he's making those decisions, fine. The checks are in place to review that, to see what, uh, uh, what, where attention needs to be given, uh, but to have the focus there, not on uh, critiquing members of your own uh, uh, Congress, your, your, your fellow uh, legislators, uh, because they, uh, th- they want to ask questions uh, about what a branch of government is doing.
0: Great, and we're now out of time. Next week's episode will have the mayor of Stephenville on the air, so we're very excited about that. Uh, we'll be here next week with more Cogley and Morrow on politics. Please like us on Facebook, listen to previous episodes on SoundCloud, and all the podcasting formats. Another week done, Eric, and we'll see you in the studio next yes, week. Next week.
3: has been the Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.